This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we discuss the middle third of J.R.R. Tolkien's 1954 novel, The Two Towers. back in it man uh a lot more stuff happened in this section this was uh there was some exciting combat there was uh a, a frodo and sam sighting uh it's, it's some golem um this feels this feels right for me it feels like we're finally into this book uh mm-hmm. as much as last week felt like setting up this week felt like definitely a, a payoff and and tons of stuff happened honestly maybe too much stuff happened because we bled some into the return of the king film like some of the some of the stuff in Two Towers ends up in the Return of the King film. I thought that was the case, but I I honestly couldn't remember. Uh, I guess the movies run together enough for me where I couldn't remember what was at like the end and what was in an extended version of Two Towers or theatrical cut and all this stuff. There's so many different versions. So yeah, I'm definitely right. going to be on the lookout for that when we watch the film to see what uh what isn't covered. I, I don't want to spoil anything, but this week on Game of Thrones we had a kind of Helm's Deep esque. Like kind of setting the stage for like a Helm's Deep esque moment. Yeah, setting the stage for yeah in Game of Thrones. So I, I just I, I don't know. I feel like I'm very in the Helm's Deep headspace of of prepping, and then and then the actual Helm's Deep battle. Like, how did it compare? Just generally, do you what do you, what do you think in comparison to that crazy battle that was in Two Towers film? I mean, it was different. There was uh, some beautiful language used to describe the combat in sort of a poetic way that obviously is a different feel from from the what we see on screen there's moments in in this helms the battle that even in no matter what iteration of this story it just gives me goosebumps there's just right. moments of of light triumphing over darkness and i don't know it just feels so righteous and so true it, and it's such a big moment for for the realm of men so if i if my energy seems a little off today it's uh i'm i'm recovering from from a cold i think i picked up at norwest con yeah the con crud hit, hit me pretty good um you know i'm gonna power through it but yeah if, if, if i seem a little bit if, if i seem a little off that's why <laughs> so how was that i'd like to hear about kind of your experience there and yeah it was good it was my third year in a row going um i put out a bunch of bookmarks with our logo on it and it seemed like people were picking them up so, you know, welcome if you're one of those people and you're a new listener. I really appreciate you giving us a chance. And this is an interesting episode to have be your first one. But <laughs> um, <laughs> if you wanted to go back, we, we covered Fellowship in the past over, over four episodes. And then uh, now we're, we're, we're going to do the same for Two Towers. And eventually we'll do the same for Return of the King. I think it's safe to say. So it was good. I got to, you know, get the word out about the podcast. Uh, went to some great readings. Went and listened to our friend uh, Fonda Lee do a reading. Um, previous guest on the show. Jade War or from? Uh, she did not read from Jade War. Um, I think mainly because she didn't want to spoil Jade City for anybody in the audience. Um, she read right. a story that was published on a podcast called uh, the Overcast Podcast, I believe, uh, which does specifically 
Pacific Northwest stories, uh, original fiction. I think they might only do that, but they might they might do other regions too. I'm not 100, percent but um, I should I should go check it out actually because it was a really fun story, and uh, it was a fun reading. Uh, I also went to a reading for Mary Robinette Kowal from her Lady Astronaut series. Uh, met her briefly. It was great. I won't get into all the all the fun things I did, but um, cool con. One of these days, I'm going to drag you to a con and we'll we'll go together, and that would be really fun. I'm looking forward to it, man. Sometime soon. So I, are you ready to jump into this? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So last we left off, our our, our heroes were getting ready to go to Helm's Deep, it seemed like. Um, and we pick up with a chapter seven called Helm's Deep. We're, we're going to go chapter by chapter. We talked about it in the last episode. And this is going to cover uh, chapters seven through 11 and then chapters one and two of book four. <laughs> a little confusing. So confusing. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So chapter seven is called Helm's Deep. Um, so they head down to uh, the river. I believe it's the river Eisen. And a man approaches the camp uh, and reports that he was at the river and the, that people were being slaughtered, it seems like. The people are being overwhelmed. Uh, Gandalf decide, bids that they all should go to Helm's Deep. That's going to be their best chance to survive. But he says, you're going to have to go. Basically, he says, you go. I'm, I have other business elsewhere and jets. And leaves everyone going like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> He's like, "I'm gonna show up at the perfect moment. It's gonna be awesome." Yeah, and it's he doesn't say anything. Like this is the thing with Gandalf. Like he's so he's so mysterious, and it would just take like a few words here and there to like clear things up. I think I'm pretty sure in the movie he says like, "Look to the you know, look to the to the east on the fifth day." At yeah, dawn. something something mysterious. He doesn't even say that in the book though. So they're all worried um, a little bit that Gandalf's not going to come back, but they they decide they're going to trust in him. Um, so on their way to Helm's Deep, they, they encounter f- a few bands of orcs, slay them, and at one point they can see that there's this great host of, of enemies coming. They arrive at Helm's Deep, man the walls, Gimli, Gimli likes that he's uh, back, like, basically in a mountain now. <laughs> he likes being, you know, around this sort of, like, out of the open forest, and... Uh, right. Legolas is wishing that they had more elvish, elvish archers there to help them. And Gimli wishes they had more dwarves, so. Aragorn in the movie is the one who sees, like, the host of orcs who are on their way to, to Helm's Deep. And he's the one who warns instead of the guy who is, like, out, one of the people who was fighting. And then the other thing is there's, there I don't think there are any elvish archers other than Legolas in the book. No, there's not. The elves don't come to help in the book like they do in the movie. Which is such a cool part. Like, I love having the elves at Helm's Deep in the movie. Yeah, it was cool, but... um. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe the division between races is more stark here. The elves seem completely removed from this conflict at this point. So that'll be something to track as we go forward. I mean, and I wanted to give Tolkien credit because I the I think the battle plays out almost exactly the same way as it does in the movie. And like that's one of the you know greatest battles in cinematic history. So for everything to play out in this basic, I'm pretty sure almost the exact same way. Is, is pretty pretty wild and i love it's pretty idea. cool we don't have legolas like surfing on a shield or anything so there's definitely some <laughs> some you know creative license taken there but it, it, it it's but in more, terms of the big moments yeah like, a lot of the big moments are the same um there's 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 the sort of rallying charge out there's uh there's some explosions some you know siege craft uh, there's a lot of descriptions about the uh, the tides of the battle, and it, to me there was a lot of like in- imagery of like waves crashing against each other, and um, mm-hmm. like I said, it was it was written in a very poetic way, like you would see like you see in a lot of like 
Charge of the Light Brigade kind of style poetry um, from back in the day where it was very like flowery and, and talking about how like grand it all is. And we get mm-hmm. we get a lot of that. One of my biggest surprises was something that I thought was a movie invention because it seemed so modern to me and actually wasn't the competition. It's the yeah, yeah, it's the it's the kill competition between Legolas and Gimli. Right. It does add levity to the battle and sort of a fun uh, thing to track. Um, but yeah, I don't know how I feel about it in general because it wasn't something I was ever a big fan of in the movie. And even knowing that it's in the book doesn't make me necessarily like it. I think I think in both instances, I'm not a huge fan. And and I guess well, I'm okay I- with like it, it played better here. It's when they pick it back up in Return of the King where it starts to feel like they're beating a dead horse kind of thing. I think I prefer it in the movie because I felt like when I was reading it here, I felt like it was it seemed it felt out of place. Like it because everything else is so poetic and serious and having the jokes as much as I like that characterization for those two characters and showing like the bond between an elf and a dwarf. It didn't feel it, like the movie felt like the place where you would that like you said, it felt like it's such a modern thing and it felt like it was a natural progression or something that would happen in that battle but in the book it was i was like wow i was i I, yeah i'd forgotten and i was kind of surprised that it was in the book and not that i didn't like it but i I think it just fits a little better in the movie so another thing that stood out to me was that it felt like gimli was a serious badass in this fight he was like jumping off the ramparts at different parts he was he was like laying among the dead and then like rising up and chopping orcs and I don't know. He just he seemed really fucking cool in this battle. Um, Legolas kills a bunch of orcs early on with his arrows, but then quickly runs out, and and uh, then all of a sudden it seems like his his count drops. Yeah, there's a moment where Gimli, like I think Theoden or somebody important, Aramir, somebody was like being overcome, and out of nowhere, because he's so small, Gimli was able to like sneak up and just like ch- cut the head off of two orcs to like save the day. Um, and then and then there's this whole thing where he gets trapped and like driven into the tunnels underneath Helm's Deep. Yeah, and he's like trapped down there with all these orcs, and like yeah, they openly are wondering like, is he gonna be able to survive down there? He comes out later like covered in orc blood, and like he's just been a, he's he, they're trapped in here with me. <laughs> it's kind of how it was. Like, he he was in his element down there. Or Rorschach. Know? Yeah, Rorschach. Yeah, it was cool. You know, I, I like to see Gimli, and that was something I had heard because I had never read this battle. I, I I theorized that I hadn't last episode, but I definitely haven't. This was my first time reading it. And, uh, yeah, people, I remember people saying, like, it's weird how Legolas was made into the, like, really badass fighter and Gimli was relegated to sort of comic relief for the most part for the movies. Right. So far, I was kind of like, well, Legolas seems like kind of a badass in the books, too. Um, But this is, like, one of the first times where it did feel like Gimli kind of outshined him a little bit in this fight. And then he ends up having the higher count by, by, like, one or something. Um, but they both are badasses killing lots of orcs. So the hill people, uh, humans are fighting with the orcs on the side of the orcs who've been, who've been fooled by Saruman. It comes out. Um, but mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I don't think we saw humans fighting with the orcs until, until return of the King. Maybe we saw some, but not, not, in the, not in two towers. So, uh, that was a slightly different, different setup. I mean, and I think that's kind of realistic because of the, you know, the influence that we see Saruman have and, 
and Sauron as well. Well, this is Saruman's forces, but just the influence we see Saruman have, you could you could assume that it wouldn't just be orcs; it would also be humans. No, yeah, why wouldn't I, you? I, yeah, and it complicates things a little bit because like we can all root for everybody slaughtering these orcs, but how do we feel about them killing the hill hill people who are just humans? But I mean, I I feel like you could write a whole essay about the racism of it, <laughs> uh, of having it be these like uncultured hill people who get caught up in the evil and and you know don't know better and and they have to be essentially like saved and converted at the end by theoden and but yeah i I do also think you're right that having some people on the other side it does add an added layer of just humanity and that and that people can be fooled and 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 we can't just wholeheartedly cheer for this battle we've talked about in this world orcs are all bad so them getting slaughtered is like we just have to cheer for it i guess there is a moment here where the trumpet sound and Theoden rides forth like he does, you know, in both iterations. And it, it never it never ceases to give me goosebumps. Like that's what I, that's what I was talking about earlier in the episode. It's just it's such a it's such a huge moment and, and it's so well written. And honestly, like seeing it written out is it, it's such a different experience. It's it's still the same goosebump inducing moment. But in a different way, it's like more poetic and beautiful, like we've talked about a lot with Tolkien's prose. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he gives a lot of those. A lot of those iconic lines from the movie are right out of the book. I was thinking about the the speeches that Theoden gets to give in in the books and movies. He's just he gets some of the most epic moments, some of the most yeah. you know humanity coming together against and against a common enemy, and just the the willingness to come together against this enemy. It's just it's it's so like good versus evil and classic storytelling, but it's it just is effective still. You know, I don't want this in every story, but I think that there are certain ones that it's just the reason why it's this is a, you know, a template or a classic piece is because it's like one of the greatest. Yeah, man. And um, we, we see there's there's a lot of talk about thunder and lightning, like crashing. Some of it, I think, is explosions. But then also it seemed like there was some going on in the mountains beyond. I think that links up with some stuff that happens later with with Frodo and Sam um, in the first chapter we get with them. So I'm wondering if this was like some subtle attempt to sort of line up timelines and say like this is happening around this time i'm not sure i think that we're supposed to pick up with frodo and sam around the time that aragorn gimli and legolas are looking for Merry and pippin maybe it, they he does they do say they do say something about three days having passed which i'm not sure what the timeline is like for the for the chase so right um i'd have to go back and and parse it and like look for look for specific timeline shout outs but it's not really that important um, anyway, so when they ride out, they also do see the white rider, um, you know, arrive and that's, that's Jesus. Gandalf and he comes, Oh Jesus. No, <laughs> he comes down and, 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 uh, yeah, lays into the orcs and is generally, uh, is generally a badass. Um, which reminds me last week we had some discussion about, um, about theology. Let's just say, um, both of us are ignorant of it. And we did, we said we were going to return. We were going to look back, and, and the question was posed: Did when Jesus died, did he go to hell and fight all the demons and and suffer? I guess, and then come back, or was it more? I don't know, physical torment, I guess, and not not that sort. Did you look that up and see if you found anything? Yeah, like I said on the episode last week, as soon as we got off, I started looking into it, and I did did a lot of reading. Um, the I think the shortest and easiest answer is is no, but I also do want to say that there's something to be said for yes. 
uh i've i have a couple of quotes here okay uh it's not it's not as cut and dry as people would think so there are two greek words for the abode of the dead greek is the language in which the new testament of the bible was originally written hell in greek also called the lake of fire and the eternal fire was made for the devil and his minions and will be occupied by all the unrighteous after the last judgment the other greek word is hades this is the region of the dead. Mm. Before Jesus' ascension, the spirits of all people went to Hades. After his ascension, only the spirits of unbelievers go to Hades. Well, the spirits of believers go directly to be with the Lord. So there's a quote here from Ephesians 4, 8, 10. Didn't think we would be reading Bible scripture on the podcast, <laughs> but it says that Jesus had descended into the lower part of the earth. This may also speak about Jesus' visit to Hades before his ascension. And finally, Romans 10.7 refers to Jesus in the abyss while he was among the dead. After the final judgment, Hades will be cast into hell. Therefore, the long answer is yes, Jesus descended into Hades, but not into hell. Okay. So it has to do with translations, I guess. Some some certain translations will say that uh, Jesus you know, descended into hell when really it's, he kind of descended into the dead, not necessarily saying that he went to hell. So, yeah. And the reason we're bringing that up once again is the, the obvious connection that to Gandalf's storyline and Gandalf the white returning from his journey into darkness. And yeah, um, I think you, you just the, when you're talking about these things, it, it, it sounds very much like Gandalf to me. So I think it's clear that uh, Tolkien's Catholic upbringing uh, bled over into his work a little bit here with, with Gandalf. So ultimately, I think I was wrong, but I was definitely onto something. Jesus didn't, he didn't go down and, and fight demons and like kick ass. It was more of just uh, translation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still like your version, but let's let's move on in the story here. Chapter 8 is called The Road to Isengard. Uh, Gandalf starts off by telling everybody about the Ents, but without actually telling them what the Ents are. <laughs> he just tells this like mysterious story about these beings, and everyone's like, well, what is that? And he's like, you'll soon find out. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like sounds like a Gandalf story then. Yep. And so they, they, they go uh, along this road um, that's like a shortcut or something that they know about, and... On the way, Legolas and Gimli have this like pretty extensive debate about essentially what's better, caves or trees. And uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> Legolas says he likes the trees. Gimli goes on and on about the beautiful ca- caverns that were beneath Helm's Deep, which I, was pretty was pretty uh, effective advertising for caves, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. He did a good job. He was talking. So, about do you the- find yourself leaning? You find yourself leaning more towards like the stronghold of a of a cave. Rather well, than that's what I was going to ask you, man. When it comes down to trees versus caves, where do you fall? I, it's easy for me. I'm trees. I'd rather I'd rather be out there. Yeah. I get claustrophobic. I don't want to be in the caves. I don't think I have the I don't think I have the temperament of a dwarf. They're just they're they're hardy and and like yeah. I I don't know. They're they're very much ready to be in a hole for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm ultimately, I'm with you. I, I like the dwarves. I like, I like having a house. I like, you know, the idea of a hobbit hole is cool, and having like a little burrow. But ultimately, I, I'm like you. I, I get too claustrophobic, and and the idea of being underground for too long is kind of oppressive. So I'm gonna have to go with Legolas on this one. They do agree that they're going to each visit each other's area. Uh, Legolas is gonna take him to Fangorn. And uh, Gimli will take him beneath Helm's Deep to the caverns after this is all over so that they can, like, see each other's place. And this friendship between the two of them and between these two races that, that historically do not get along uh, is definitely really cool. And I think it's um, I think that's, like, a positive 
message that you're getting in this book, right? Like the coming together mm-hmm. of two different races that don't get along, um, you know, as, as a, as like sort of an allegory for racial relations maybe. Um, but I think it does work. I think we could agree that it's more well explored as well in the books. It's yeah. rather than, I mean, it's effective in the book, in the movies and you understand the relationship and that they're, they're not supposed to get along, but they do and they're good friends and they bond but this, it's just that you really get the history and you really get those, I think you get some more small moments that, that really build into their, it being a very effective friendship. And this whole forest cave thing is, is definitely one of those moments. Um, so all, while they're along the road, all of a sudden, a bunch of uh, ints just come out of the woods and everyone's just like stunned. And the ints don't even notice them. They just like walk right, walk right on past. Um, and Theoden is like, these are things we've only talked about in, in, in stories, and we didn't think they were actually real. Every time they do this, I, every time Tolkien does this, I like to see the men who are, you know, not as experienced as in, in the ways of these old ancient myth, mystical things. I like to see the reaction. It's just, it's just as a reader and not, you know, be, like kind of putting myself in the, in the shoes of, a, of a somebody like Theoden and, and, and seeing something like this is just, it's effective. It works for, for being so them being so ancient and magical and oh to go back to something we were talking about just a second ago it's just something that came to mind the idea of a hobbit hole by the way is kind of a mixture between the forest and and like a cave you know it's it's got enough like nature and and uh you know forest like characteristics to it while also being basically just like a hole in the ground yeah i agree with that it's like kind of like this middle ground you know it's not it doesn't have the harshness of the mountains and not the maybe the wildness of the forest instead of this like calmer softer hill country um so the the group this 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 group is writing to isengard under um gandalf's um i should have said under gandalf's um, advice he's basically saying like now's the time to go there and and because he knows that the ants are moving on saruman um, but he doesn't reveal that, so everybody just kind of has to tr- take his word for it. On the way there, they also they stop by the river and they see where all of these people died when they fought the orcs. And there's a big cairn that has been built, and um, we learned that Gandalf basically ordered some people to do it, or not ordered, but suggested that some people, you know, do that. And uh, they decide to to set up camp by the river. And then kind of a weird passage um, at night, all of a sudden, like all these shadows come out and start walking past them. And um, it seems like they were ants, but um, I think they're actually these horns, um, which are these. I, I, I looked them up because I wasn't really sure. They, they seem to be like sentient trees that are shepherded by the by the ants, but they're they're a little darker and more um, wild. And um, according to the Lord of the Rings lore, I read um, Old Man Willow uh, is said to be one. Is said to be one of these horns, and uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. And these, there, there's basically hundreds and hundreds of them that get commanded by the Ents, and that's one of the additional. That's why how the forces were so big uh, to take on, take on Isengard. Uh, so I don't know. I'll be interested to see. Like I, I feel like the ants are just ants in the in the movie. Like we don't get this kind of like other race of trees, like sentient trees. I don't think so. Um, so according to the lore, these these horns are also, also when they travel at night, especially they seem to be able to do it like wrapped in shadow. And I guess that's why all this shadow seems to be walking past them, 
when they're at their camp. They basically the next day they continue on into Isengard and there's like all these puddles everywhere and it seems like there's been a flood that has then drained. They they get closer and closer and there's 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 bodies everywhere. Basically they approach the ring of Isengard which has no green things inside of it. it. Used to have all these trees, but they all got cut down by Saruman. And instead, he he built all these like iron, uh, like uh, quarries and uh, smithies and stuff like into the earth. And then um, at the center of that is Orthanc, uh, which is this marvelous t- tower um, that appears to be a- driven from the bones of the earth, which I think is a, was a really cool phrase. And uh, they know that that's the 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 center of power for Sauron. As they draw mm-hmm. closer, they see that the, yeah, these are, there's all these pools. It looks like something went down here. Um, there's uh, you know signs of a battle going on, and uh, basically they they realize that Sauron is inside of Orthunk with Wormtongue. Right as they get up to Orthunk, they come across Merry and Pippin, who are basically blazed, uh, drunk. They've eaten tons of food, and they're just like hanging out right out inside of right in front of Orthunk, and uh, they're really happy to see them. And they have this funny reunion uh, where they're like, "What the hell are you guys doing here? How did this hell happen? Everyone's confused." Um, Theoden has like never even heard of hobbits. He's like, "We have heard of some halflings, but but he doesn't know anything about them." And uh, I like how I think it's like Merry or Pippin. I can't remember which one starts to tell the story of like pipe weed and how it became a thing like smoking it became a thing and then Gandalf like cuts him off and he's like we don't have time for this um, <laughs> so yeah what did you think of coming across uh, our two blazed hobbits here I like it I mean it's post battle and so clearly like the battles already happened and they're just like kind of in the spoils of victory hanging out uh, for people who are more familiar with the movies at this point we're into Return of the King territory for the for the um, movies as far as yeah. the story goes like this this remember. is yeah this Isengard stuff like this is I, I want to say as far as like Gandalf and, and Legolas Aragorn Gimli uh, and Theoden I think that they their story within two towers ends somewhere around the end of the battle like I think they look off yeah. after the battle they like look off into the distance and and like talk about how like Frodo and Sam are still carrying on so the basically the party splits. Um, the Gimli, Aragorn, and Legolas decide to stay behind with Merry and Pippin. Gan- Gandalf goes off with Theoden for a while, and he's going to return. Um, while they're gone, Merry and Pippin fill in everybody about what happened, how they found this this Hobbit leaf um, was like floating around in the in the water, and and Aragorn actually thinks that that's kind of troubling, and that it might might uh, be a hint that that Saruman actually had some dealings with somebody in, 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 um, in the Shire. Um, so then there's talk of them all sharing pipes together <laughs> and having like a bonding moment. Mm-hmm. Well, they like, yeah, they give Gimli one. I think Mary or Pippin gets to, like the Gimli's like, if only I had my pipe and they like give him one of theirs and they're like, yeah. you can keep it. It's they're like, like cool puff moment. up fast, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not yeah. marijuana. We talked about it in our opening things, but like, it's also not, not marijuana. <laughs> Right, it's got some properties that aren't just tobacco. So yeah, it's like it's like magic it tobacco with maybe a little bit more, yeah, more properties to it. Yeah, 
this is where Merry and Pippin give the story of the attack on Isengard. Now, so this is interesting because, like, we don't get it directly. And I think this is actually kind of a subversion. So we think we're going to have this big epic battle and we think we're going to follow it up with another epic battle and that they're going to join in with the Ents and the attack on Isengard. But instead they show up and it's already over. Um, and then we hear about it, sec- like, after the fact. Um, which is obviously changed for the movie where we do see it happen- happening. But this is where we hear about Treebeard basically leaving, leading the troops. They come in. Orcs are shooting him with arrows, but that those don't really hurt him. just pisses him off. And after Treebeard gets angry, he starts getting really hasty. Um, they start tearing up rocks and basically hurling, hurling them at the gates. Um, Saruman barely escapes in time to get into the tower to not get, not get grabbed by Treebeard. And it seems from inside he basically lights up the fires of the hearths and starts and starts like sending out fire from Orthunk. It was kind of unclear exactly how they were doing it. Maybe some defenses, but Treebeard kind of realizes that they have no hope to get inside. They're all like kind of smashing themselves on the, on the walls and it's not working. This is when they instead said, decide to go to the river and uh, he sends the Huarns to the river to, to, to uh, bust the dam and create the flood, um, which, which works. Uh, the orcs are basically getting slaughtered. They're, they're no match for the Ents who uh, are able to just destroy them. The River Aizen floods in, uh, fills up a lot of these kind of uh, quarries and, and holes. And uh, that was basically the end of the battle. And then Treebeard decided to leave um, just like a guard around around Orthunk for now. Um, I also don't know if I said this is chapter 9 called Flotsam and Jetsam. And it seems to take its name from all the stuff that's floating in the water after it fills fills up, and some of that including the the tobacco that they're or the long leaf or whatever they're they're smoking. Uh, they do tell of of Treebeard encountering Wormtongue, who and he he grabbed Wormtongue and was like getting ready to kill him, and Wormtongue pleads for his life, says he's just a messenger here to to speak to Saruman, and so Treebeard decides to let him go. And Wormtongue, when he sees that that Orthunk has been like overtaken, is like unsure about it. But basically, Treebeard gives him no choice, so he does go and join Saruman in, in Orthunk. Um, it seems that the power of Saruman is immense, and when he's in this tower, like basically nobody can get to him, and he's he's like holed up in there, cornered animal, as, as Gandalf later says. Exactly, and he his power we see of influence is is very also very powerful just just speaking words and we knew this from before like fellowship the words on the wind and the way that he's able to affect things just with his voice and his words yeah speaking of that chapter 10 is called the voice of saruman and it is uh, literally now the gandalf returns uh with theoden and they decide they're going to go up to the tower and try and talk to saruman it's going to be Theoden, Aragorn, Eomir, Gimli, and Legolas, and Gandalf are all going to climb up, and Merry and Pippin are basically down at the foot of the stairs. Sar- they basically knock on the door and are like, come out! <laughs> and uh, I think first Wormtongue pops his head out, says some stuff, but then Saruman appears. His voice, yeah, they said that his voice immediately be- bewitches, and it seeps into the hearts of like everyone that hears it, and it depends on like how your will is and whether or not you're able to resist its effect. But it said that like some people, even long after, were still affected by what they had heard. Um, I assume just in the in the in the in the crowd around. Um, and it seems like he has to focus. Like there has to be a certain because he can only focus on certain people. Like at one point he's focusing on the riders of Rohan, but Gimli is not affected. 
Like right. Gimli pipes up and well, says something. Well, the more stout people, like, I think, are able to resist it. But I, I was wondering about like the unnamed characters and the and the writers and stuff. Like, so it seems like there's a hint that some of them like get a deep seated thing in their heart from hearing this that makes them believe that Saruman was right. Um, so it is cool though. Uh, Theoden and and Saruman are kind of verbally sparring, and, and and all of the people are starting to to think that like they were too hasty and that like maybe Saruman had a point and they're starting to like get caught up in it before Gandalf finally joins the conversation. And he basically calls out Saruman for what he's doing. They, they argue, uh, he, Saruman essentially turns to like storm off, but then Gandalf commands him to come back and Saruman does. And we see, this is where we see Gandalf really like usurping Saruman here i think mm-hmm. and he says you know i'm casting you out of the order he breaks his staff with just like the power of his command and we talked about the like when gandalf didn't give up his staff before we were kind of talking about whether or not the staff was their power and it seems like they do need it in some way to yeah to it definitely is a least. detriment to not have it it seems like so this is a cool badass moment for for gandalf in my opinion like this is we see him sort of saying like i am the most powerful wizard you are no longer and asserting his dominance over saruman here after after saruman gave him a good like gave his best with his like bewitching voice right um and then Wormtongue during this conversation uh Wormtongue hurls something out the window <laughs> um which ends up being this dark globe called the palantir i don't know probably yeah. mispronouncing that so Pippin grabs it, grabs it up, and, and then Gandalf quickly gets it from him first. But but um, Pippin touches it, which becomes important in the next in the next uh, chapter. Basically, they they decide that Saruman is not worth it, and they're not going to try and go in there after him, and they're just going to leave him there with some some ints left to watch watch him and make sure he doesn't find a way out. And they decide to reflood uh, the area again just to make sure he can't get get out. Right. The wizard battle, we've seen them come to blows in, in Fellowship the way that they actually use magic against each other. But seeing the powerful nature of these two wizards and the way that they, they just are sparring with words and how you can see Saruman, like, like he loses his cool at one point. He's he's like very convincing to the writers of Rohan and then he loses it and kind of like snaps and says a bunch of crazy stuff. And when he does that, you can see that he's lost it. Like he doesn't, he's not in control anymore. And yeah. so Gandalf is clearly going to be able to defeat him. And I think that that moment also shows that as powerful as Saruman was, just the, the influence that Sauron had over him, the way that like it twisted him and, and made him a, like he was clearly at one point a, either. I mean, he was a white wizard, so he was probably as powerful as Gandalf is currently. I think he's been more corrupted. Power- so. or currently, yeah, yeah. Because he was more powerful than him before, I think. Right. So, but he's a white, he's a white wizard. So you would think it, he, he's clearly like one of the strongest. And since he's been corrupted, it's like seeing him lose it and, and not able to, you know, even come to blows with, with Gandalf anymore is I think it's powerful stuff. And it leads to Sauron seeming even more intimidating because Gandalf is willing to go toe to toe with this guy, with Saruman at this point, because he's so powerful and you know, Gandalf isn't going to try in any way to go toe to toe with Sauron. Yeah. So the way that this all goes down where Saruman is trapped in Orthanc and the way that he's going to be kind of watched over by the the Ents, I believe is how it goes down in the theatrical version of Return of the King, because at this point we're in Return of the King. But there is a deleted scene or, you know, in the extended version, there's there's more to this scene. And I, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on leaving Saruman, like such a powerful wizard just trapped in a tower? The book does a slightly better job of, of implying that 
it would be really hard to try and get into the tower with him in there. Like he's able to just like magically keep that thing sealed. It would take a lot of work and ultimately might not be worth it. Um, whereas I think in the movie, that was one of the things that always felt kind of like a weird plot hole to me. It's like, why do they just like, they defeat Saruman and then just leave him in the tower to do whatever he right. wants. It seems like it, weird. it could be dangerous and he could just come back to power. Right. Yeah. And well then also like the ints kind of like saying they're going to like set up guard around him. I don't remember that being a thing in the movie. So maybe it is. No, um, I don't think, I don't think it is. Yeah, so it's also like they're they are leaving a guard to make sure he doesn't get in get up into trouble, you know, and do anything else. It is kind of a weird choice, but um, it's it's like Tolkien has no qualms about slaughtering thousands and thousands of orcs, but uh, a lot of these human characters, you know, it's like Wormtongue, Saruman, like they're all like they all get spared. Well, yeah, and it's like the mercy of Gandalf. Gandalf is specifically telling everybody not to kill Saruman in this situation he's like don't kill him like don't worry about it we're gonna leave him here yeah and i think that I think yeah you're right mercy it, is the key a, word here it's a different like i said there's a different scene that plays out in the extended edition so i'll be excited to talk about that when we get there last thing and, is just the shriek that saruman lets out when he realizes that worm worm tongue threw the palantir out the window yeah which is which is was a bizarre move was worm tongue just trying to hit him with a stone <laughs> i don't know what was going like why did he throw that out the window do we know? I think there was a line about how, yeah, he couldn't decide who he hated more and he was like trying to hit somebody with it. Yeah. He couldn't decide who he hated more. So that's why he missed. Yeah, man. Like he was trying to know. hit two people at once. I don't know. I think, but yeah, just going back to that, I, I think mercy for your enemies, um, unless they're orcs, <laughs> um, right. does seem to be sort of, sort of what, um, Tolkien's trying to say here is, 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 is valuable. So the next chapter is called the Palantir and, uh, the group sets off from Isengard, and Merry and Pippin um, observe that they think Gandalf has changed some since his fall into darkness. They think he's more intense now, like more quick to anger, but also like more quick to any emotion. Um, mm-hmm. So we talked about this earlier, like how different is he really? This is this is them um, noticing some differences. Also, uh, we didn't I, I forgot to mention it. Um, it's noticed that Merry and Pippin are different because they drink of the Ent Wash. And it said that they're like taller now, and 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 um, so it's interesting that they've been affected. It does seem to me that there's, uh, you know, we're talking about themes of this series, um, the theme of, of going out your door and going out into the world and getting experiences, and then and then being changed by them. I think is is pretty mm-hmm. is pretty uh, apparent and even physically changed by them as we see here. Yeah. And I think it has something to do with he's obsessed with size, too, right? Like the idea of playing with expectations of, you know, Gimli is a smaller guy, but clearly he's he was a very important piece during the during the Helm's Deep. And, and the idea that the hobbits are so small, but their experiences, the shadow of the hobbit is is stretching and becoming larger and looming yeah. because there's they are so important and they are able to do these like tasks that no one else can. And they repeatedly are, are involved in some of the biggest happenings in this in this war here. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, one night in camp, uh, Pippin wakes up. He's been dreaming of the stone that he saw. And he saw like an image in there and it's been haunting his dreams. So he decides he's going to go over to Gandalf. And and uh, there was a cool line where like he sees Gandalf is actually, um, his eyes are open while he's sleeping. And like he looks at him and then he realizes that he's still, he's actually asleep. And that's something that directly gets into, I think, Return of the King, I guess. But it I is so, in yeah. one of the movies directly. Um, he makes a swap with a stone, then he goes a little bit out of camp, and he sits down, and he looks into it, and then we get kind of a trippy scene where he is communing with Sauron directly, 
Saruman thinks that it's um, Sar- uh, Saruman or maybe Wormtongue, um, one of mm-hmm. his servants, and he doesn't realize it's the Hobbit, and uh, asks him like, "What's you know what news is there?" <laughs> like wants to know what's been going on, and it clearly like Saruman isn't fully aware of everything that's transpired. Then uh, the eye is upon him, and Gandalf basically comes over like right at the the last second to to stop Saruman from really or Sauron from really seeing. Pippin, it seems, and uh, mm-hmm. throw like ca- casts a blanket over it and covers it up, and and like gets goes to scold him, and then we see that he's actually like frozen with fear or something, almost like petrified. Yeah, I mean, what what was your take on that whole scene? It again gives Mary and Pippin, specifically in this situation, Pippin uh, more agency and and more important, and like this immediately makes his his character more important because he's communed with something that no one else other than maybe frodo through the ring he's communed with the most evil evil and he's just a little hobbit yeah and dealing with that and just the power that communing with him and and becoming petrified uh, gandalf does uh theorize that that sauron is going to send um one of the writers to find out what happened because he's currently still um worried that saruman is actually turned against him and mm-hmm. is rebelling against him so that all seems to play in the favor of, of humanity and, and our heroes here. And Gandalf mentions that he wants to use this as a distraction now. Like he's he's glad that this can be used to confuse Sauron. And, and that's why in the next little bit you're going to talk about, he takes Pippin and they, they leave to kind yeah. of draw the eye away. They do take, yeah, he does take Pippin and leave. But before he does, he gives he gifts the the Palantir to uh, Aragorn in this, like, he, like, drops to a knee and, like, gives him back, gives it to him and calls him, like, the you know, a lord and all this stuff. Because we learned that these stones were these communication devices used by the lords of old and the kings of old. And that's why he gives it back to Aragorn. Yeah, that, that stuff, I, I've reread that a few times because I love that so much. Like, hearing about how they were older than Sauron, older than Saruman. Like they're, they're just bending these, these ancient devices to their, to their evil wills, but they're not necessarily evil artifacts on their own. Gandalf's theory seems to be that Saruman was using it to see, to, to like keep an eye on Barad-dur and, and Mordor and, and Saruman and, or Sauron and, and like keep an eye mm-hmm. on it. And then like through his use of it, he actually created that connection with Sauron and didn't realize it and then got his mind twisted when he thought he was the one who was like peering peering there there was actually someone looking mm-hmm. back and and I think this is a line that we get in the movie where he says you know you don't know what could be watching or could be looking back um and so I think that comes from this this observation he's making here to Pippin where he talks about like this is probably how Saruman was able to get um swept up in this and and under the influence of Sauron and I, Gandalf at one point talks about how he would he would love to use it in order to like glimpse into the past or or like you know um, see how th- they were formed and he he would love to use it for like research purposes or like historical reasons but he's he's not willing to because it's been because he could fall to the same thing that Saruman did yeah um, and then yeah they they're they're on their way to Minas Tirith uh, the uh, Nazgul is past the river now which is a, a sign to Gandalf that like shit's about to hit the fan and that he they need they need to get going. And that's where we leave that 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 crew, and we get book four, chapter one, called "The Taming of Smeagol." We made it back, Frodo. We're back Sam. with Frodo! Yay! Uh, I was so happy to get back with them. Um, I I didn't realize how much I I love these characters, um, and how I think they they must be my favorites because I was missing them. 
I was I was really missing. Absolutely. Him. Oh yeah, I, I think I mentioned in fellowship like Sam is the mo- I love Frodo, but Sam is like my favorite part. Yeah. And let's give a shout out to Gollum because I think Gollum is like one of the greatest characters in like all of fantasy. Like he's yeah. such a compelling character. Seeing him, like him following these two, then then him even getting. I mean, in this chapter, basically, um, they're, I'll get to it. They're they're traveling. The, the the climb is getting extremely difficult. There's this whole thing where Sam remembers they have this elven rope. They use it just like the movie. He tugs on it and it unwraps itself. There's a lot of talk about lightning blasting and like actually blinds Frodo at one moment. So that's one of the things that made me think maybe they were trying to line line that up with the timeline. But I don't know. I felt like that lightning. Just to jump back to Helm's Deep real quick, that lightning he kept talking about how it would you know shine on the faces of the orcs and and it would light up the battle i thought it's so that's so visceral yeah the idea of in the battle just having the entire battlefield illuminated in the middle of the night by lightning is it's i don't know like i said it's cool yeah cool visual um so so that all leads up to them deciding basically they're gonna try and tackle Gollum because he's been chasing them and they and uh sam does Gollum like falls he tackles them but then Gollum's really strong wrestles with him bites sam and then uh frodo gets behind him and uses sting to essentially threaten Gollum to to you know stop fighting yeah um once they do um they get frodo has this moment where he remembers his words with gandalf about him having a role yet to play and he actually has a he has a, like a moment where he's talking with him with past gandalf and i think this worries sam um mm-hmm. and then he decides not to kill Gollum then then and there and they they realize that Gollum has been where they're going before. Essentially, he was taken there when he was questioned. So he knows the way in a way that they don't. So they want to have Gollum lead them to where they're going. Um, and they try and tie a rope on him on his ankle, but it hurts Gollum like so much that he's just like constantly screaming in agony. And so they decide instead that he's they're going to make him swear and. Frodo realizes that he making him swear on the precious is the way to to like get him to stick to a, to an oath. He thinks. I do think it was interesting that they weren't swear. How was it worded? They weren't swearing on the precious, but by the precious or something. Swear by the precious. Yeah. Yeah, because he's he feels that like making a swear on the on the precious or on the ring could lead to some sort of influence or power that Sauron would have over that situation the dynamics of this relationship are so interesting these three of these three characters because we have Gollum decides he's going to follow frodo he considers frodo the new master of the precious Mm -hmm. he wants desperately to to like become the master again of the precious but he has this respect for frodo it's two though and he actually likes frodo but then sam is just this other mean nasty hobbit there and so he doesn't get any of that sort of um respect that he has for frodo other than just that he knows that he has to play nice and so then like there's that nastiness between sam and him and then sam can see that he is actually plotting like from the get-go and that he can't be trusted he even overhears him talking in the next chapter um but yeah i don't know it's just it's so good this this to me is is I mean, one of the most interesting parts about Gollum is the fact that, like you said, there's like there are three characters, but ultimately, Smeagol and Gollum are are two in their own. So there's four. That's characters. true. There's four characters, and we almost. would think, and we would think that like if it was just Smeagol, Gollum. I'm sorry, if it was just Smeagol, Sam, and Frodo, things might go their way. But the problem is this influence from the Ring has created someone else in Gollum, and he won't allow Smeagol to just serve the Master. He's like he's like you made a promise to serve the Master, but if we became the Master again, then we would just be serving ourselves. Yeah, that's in the that's in this next chapter here. Um, 
But so for now, Smeagol swears and he becomes their guide. And, and I do like how they, they compare him to how, how his deme- whole demeanor changes and he starts acting like a little puppy dog, basically, who's like happy to please. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get chapter two and it's called The Passage of the Marshes. So um, also, I, I just put, I just put a line in here that I feel like we all need a gaffer. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just love that, like, the talk about, like, oh, you're going to tell another story about your gaffer. What did your gaffer used to say, Sam? It's become this, like, ongoing joke that, like, the, the gaffer has all this wisdom that Sam likes to likes to quote. And I don't know. I just thought we all need a gaffer, man. So th- th- this is this is <laughs> pulling me into my production background. But, like, in this situation, a gaffer would represent what? I think a gaffer is a specific person. It was, like, um, I think the guy the guy's name was something that derived the word from. I think it was... Um, yeah, Gaffer Gamgee was literally um, one of the Gamgees. He was just known as the Gaffer, and he was uh, oh, he was he was Sam's father, according to the lore here. Hearing somebody talk about the Gaffer repeatedly makes me think of a Gaffer on a on a film set, and uh, a Gaffer on a film set is like the they're in charge of like lighting. Basically, they're the head of the lighting department, um, and so like that's what that it just makes me think of that for some reason, and and I, I, it's hard to separate it. So whenever he was saying like you know you talk to your Gaffer, I was like what it's also funny that, like, that was representing like a gardener or something or some other weird word for it's his like it's that, his father it that it's a name but but yeah but he they call him the gaffer because that's just like a cooler name or something i don't know it seems it's like i don't know it's funny it's something you could see actually happening you know if somebody had like a weird name like gaffer they might they might yeah, actually it's like, go oh yeah route. my my Mima or my you know my grammy or something like a little nickname type thing yeah but like the gaffer is different than my gaffer right or something like that it's it's good stuff though um we do get a song from Gollum where he's singing, singing about juicy sweet fish um which i think that's something that we directly get in the movie um mm-hmm. which is good stuff uh he can't eat the limbus bread so there's a lot of talk about like what's he going to eat and and so there's some debate about that did you think that there was a moment when Gollum was kind of asking them questions i thought and he he mentioned like oh baggins bilbo baggins answered this one and it was like a reference to like the riddles in the dark in the hobbit you know i actually did have a moment where i was thinking he was referencing those riddles but i wasn't sure so that's interesting that you did too yeah i thought we might for a second i was like do we get Gollum asking Frodo and Sam some riddles at some point, but yeah. that, I, I don't remember that being in the books. But that would have been—I like that—that that was at least referenced. Yeah, it was like reminiscent in, in of, of of those of those riddles. Yeah. Um, so they go into the dead marshes where there's these like lights that are called like basically corpse candles. And at one point, Sam falls over and he sees dead faces deep beneath the waters. Um, call it you know pale faces. Um, that are foul and rot, rotting. And Gollum says basically, yes, there was a great battle here long before um, Gollum had the precious. He, he remembers hearing about it. And that there was a, a battle fought at, at, before the Black Gates um, in an age or more ago. And this is like, I guess, the dead left over in the marshes now. Um, this is a really like evocative, dark area that is cool. Um and I, I think has inspired games like Dark Souls. <laughs> you know, this feels like a, this feels like a level out of Dark Souls. Souls, um, yeah, <laughs> it was cool. Speaking of Dark Souls, just shout out to Sekiro. If anybody's playing that, goddamn, that game is fucking fun, man. Is it good? I I want to get it's it. So much it's fun. gonna be my next then my next one. I'm finishing up God of War, so once I finish that, I'm gonna get. I think I'm gonna get Sekiro. Cool. Do we do we, you want to speculate on what you think? I mean, I haven't looked into it at all, but is this is he referencing the battle? Because if it was before Smeagol 
or Gollum had the ring, would that have been saying that this was the battle that Sauron fell in? Potentially, Ooh, or what, I don't that, know. That, was, that battle would have been um, at Mordor, though. I think, right? Yeah, like I don't Gate. know if the locations line up for that. Um, but I also am not steeped enough in the lore to really say. No, I don't know. Yeah, if somebody knows, I'm, I mean, I'll probably look it up. But if somebody knows, that'd be cool if you could write yeah. in and let us know what battle this these soldiers are left over from. Right. Um, so a Nazgul flies overhead at this point, and um, Gollum is a is, seems to be afraid of them. Calls them wraiths on wings. And that they see everything and they tell Sauron everything. Um, so they get out of the marshes and Sam starts to perceive a change in Gollum whenever he looks at Frodo. Um, he says he looks at him in like a way that's like like hungry or like he looks like devious. Um, Frodo is also said to be feeling like the burdensome weight of the ring. And then even more so the pressure of the eye that's like constantly searching for him. He can feel that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like Frodo's not doing well with this. Um, they halt in the mountains, and basically they're in a place now where nothing lives. It's said to be choked with ash, the desolation before Mordor that's defiled and diseased. And uh, yeah, this is a. Uh, it's like as much as bad as we thought. You know, our other characters were having it. We're like seeing how bad it is now for Frodo and Sam. Like this is like awful. It's awful traveling. They're with Gollum, and they're in a super inhospitable area, and they're just going into the heart of the enemy. So yeah, it's Mm -hmm. dramatic, man. This is this is the story that that really separates Lord of the Rings. I think right, and I I mean, and I have to mention just the the cross cutting between the two stories is just so much more effective because in the films because you're just you're able to to have the struggles of what frodo and and sam are going through and juxtapose that with like the battles that are going on but at the same time like you said they're going through a lot and they're going through really rough area and you have to think like as a i mean in in just like a narrative sense you would think that like they're everyone's gonna have to push to mordor at some point or somewhere close by and so yeah. everything that Frodo and Sam are going towards, eventually all the rest of the characters will probably find themselves somewhere near there. Um, so you just know like the, the final battle, the struggles that are coming are going to be so intense for all of our characters. If they're, if they're struggling to sneak through this area, imagine having to fight their way through all of this also. So uh, Sam comes upon Gollum talking to himself, and this is a scene we referenced earlier. And he's standing over Frodo arguing, seems to be like Smeagol arguing with Gollum. And uh, I thought it was funny because the examples are th- that are given, he says, we shall become the master. Gollum the Great, Lord Gollum, will eat fish every day. Right. <laughs> it was just like the idea of the things that Smeagol would do if he was like, in, in, you know, had all the powers to eat fish every day. I think it was pretty funny. Hey, it's a t- that's an attainable goal. I did like that there was, it was talk about how like Sam realizes that, Fro- that Gollum is feeling the call of the ring and that ring is doing this to him. And then there's sort of an omniscient observation that says that essentially Sam would also be feeling the ring, but he's so worried about Frodo and the and Gollum coming for him that he's like too focused on that to notice the pull of the ring. And I think that's mm-hmm. important because we see that Sam lasts for a really long time. You know what I mean? Like, and that's something we'll be tracking as we go into Return of the King. But like, he seems to be like also incredibly resistant to the pull of the ring. This is perhaps giving us some insight into why. It's his friendship and his devotion to Frodo that that really is is doing it. And uh, yeah, this chapter ends um, basically with 
with Sam pretending he didn't hear anything. He's going to keep this knowledge in his back pocket, knows that they still need Gollum for now. And uh, they, you know, put their heads down and continue on into the into Mordor. And, and that's where we leave them. And that's where we leave this part of the book. So, yeah, what did you think, man? Or, uh, I know this we're kind of in a middle section here, so it's hard to know. But I, I just know I'm excited for this end game stuff we're going to get coming up in the the latter half of this. Uh, it's going to be all Frodo and Sam, uh, Sam, too, and Gollum in this last bit, which is going to be exciting. Yeah, I mean, we, we know what's going to happen, so it'll be fun. I, I'm ready for uh, for Frodo and Sam's kind of uh, trials that are coming next I week. I've got to say, though, man, these books do occasionally throw some curveballs in here, though, that I'm not expecting from, from the movie, so I'm, I'm going to be interested to see if we get any of that stuff, any added scenes that I don't know about and things like that. Uh, when Gollum and Smeagol are talking to each other, we kind of get a couple of names, or not even names necessarily, but titles. We get a him and a her. And oh a, yeah, referring to him and her. So, yeah, you're right. And, and so we, there's we, like there's we know some... who we know who that is. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I this is this is cool to get into the parts of the books I haven't read before though too. Like this is this is right. um this is new material for me, um as far as the actual text. So uh, it's it's exciting, man, and and uh, I'm really looking forward to into getting into this final third. Yeah, I agree. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to next week and wrapping up our book coverage of Two Towers. But this week we wanted to thank one of our patrons, Colton B. He's been a patron for quite a while now. Uh, Shout out to you for for supporting us and helping us continue the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Colton. And if you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and you can find all the bonus content we are going to we have out currently. I think it's like 11 episodes or something or 10. And we are going to be recording. Uh, we just decided we're gonna we're gonna watch the original uh, 1980s version of Pet Cemetery, which was our last project, and we're gonna release that as a bonus episode for our patrons only. So if you wanted to find out how to listen to that, you can uh, join our Patreon. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And while you're at it, join our Facebook group, the Council of Inklings, where we post polls and and any sort of adaptation news that we see. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please leave us a rating and review wherever you found this podcast. It would be a huge help. Thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. And thank you to Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay, I think that's where we're going to leave it for now. Next week, we'll be back with Frodo and Sam and Gollum. Uh, Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.